Wow. Awesome. So good to be able to praise the Lord in spirit and in truth and to be able to be in this house this morning. Uh, I want to encourage you and invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 2. As you're opening there, uh, I would encourage you guys to also uh, bow with me as we um, just take this message before the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, we just ask right now as we uh, prepare to open up your word that you'll just speak through us, speak for us, and speak to us. Lord, I ask that you will move me personally out of the way and that your message that I preach this morning will not be my own but yours. And Father, I ask as we seek uh, an opportunity and an understanding to know your word more about the path of your first church and Lord, also as the path of this church here, that we can seek a, a, just a pathway forward. Lord, that we know that you are leading us and guiding us and bringing us where you want us to be. Again, Father, we just ask that you will inhabit the reading and the preaching of your word, that it might truly be impactful, not only to me personally, but to every single person that hears this sermon. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We ask this now in the name of your Son and our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so like I said, uh, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. I'm excited about this. I've, I've preached through the book of Acts a couple times. And every time I learn something new, I, I draw more uh, more out of it, and this is no different. Uh, in fact, uh, this morning um, I've I've learned, or not this morning, but you know, I've, this week as I've been studying, I've learned even more things about uh, the first century uh, inauguration of the church than I ever knew before. And I'm really excited about where uh, God is uh, going to take us through this study as we move forward. So we're in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, and there's just a lot that is uh, taking place. Everything sort of in the last chapter was sort of a preparatory prepare, uh, preparatory for, the, for this, this, this uh, I don't even know how to describe it, except you know, this, this huge and amazing outburst um, or outpouring of the Holy Spirit um, upon this small group of believers that were praying in one accord uh, during this time of Pentecost. Um, And they had already received their commission. God had already told them they were going to be witnesses to the world. They were going to be witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea uh, and Samaria. They told them that the Holy Spirit would would come upon them. So they knew that they they were waiting for that Holy Spirit moment to, to fall upon them. And then we get to this mighty rushing wind, the Holy Spirit that descends, this time at Pentecost. And we're talking here about, in many ways, the birth of the church, right? The church is now going to be inaugurated as, as a single entity. And hopefully we'll be able to go through all of that as we look at this passage. Um, we're going to look at, uh, in the beginning, three basic concepts. Um, the first basic thing we want to look at is uh, the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at Pentecost. We're going to look at what it means to be in one accord. We touched on that last week when we talked about uh, that word homothumidon, the, the word that means focused and, and um, in one single-mindedness, right? Uh, we've, we've talked a little about that. We're going to talk a little bit about why the Holy Spirit is spoken of so much in the old in, in this um, in this passage, but not so much in the Old Testament. And I think we're going to also see some other things. Like, for instance, something I noticed this week, and I had not noticed this before, but Luke has a, a unique opera, um, opt opportunity here. He's writing two books, right? And he knew that he was going to be writing these two things because he didn't actually get involved in the message of Jesus until he was following Peter and then eventually followed Paul around. And so he was gathering information gathering sources, and then he finally wrote his gospel. And I think he understood at the, at the beginning when he was writing that, the works of Jesus, how what he did.
did, what he said, where he went, where he went, what he, how he felt. We talked about that last week. As he was writing all that stuff down, he knew that there was going to be that that part two of the volume because you can't have just the works of Jesus and then the end. You have to have what happened after his his ascension into heaven. What happened after he gave his commission to the church? And so Luke was writing all that up. But there's a unique thing here. He was also writing in parallel, and not all the time. It doesn't happen in every instance, but you can see so much of this in this. Um, he was writing his, his between the, the Luke, the, the Gospel of Luke, and the first few chapters of um, the Book of Acts. There is definitely a linkage. Um, and this parallel between Pentecost and the birth narrative that Luke records of Jesus Christ is, is very amazing because in there you have this prominent role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was intimately involved in the creation of, uh, of the physical body of Jesus in the womb of Mary. And he was incredibly uh, and prominently involved in the basically infancy of the church at that moment of Pentecost. And Paul is definitely drawing a parallel uh, between those two. Um, the Bible says that uh, John, the final prophet in the New Testament, in the, in the Old Testament, final Old Testament prophets that was mentioned in the New Testament, when, when he was done as his role of a prophet, he passed that torch on to Jesus as the new um, is the new commandment, the new covenant, the new everything, right? So you have the Old Testament ends with John, and the New Testament begins with Jesus. And John was filled with the Spirit of God, um, and his role was to be a witness. And we're going to talk about that witness in a few minutes. And there's a few other people that were involved, like Elizabeth, Zachariah, Simeon. Um, but you also see that, that there are other people that were involved in that same witnessing. Uh, and we see that in Pentecost. We mentioned Peter. We mentioned the other disciples that were there, the other people that were in that upper room, along with uh, all those individuals that heard the sound of the wind of the Holy Spirit moving and came and, be a, and were a part of this. And so you see that outflowing of the same spirit that Luke talked about in the beginning of his gospel. And we see that connectivity coming out in the birth of the church. Now it's definitely a, a, a very precious moment. Acts 2 is, is um, talks about forming this unity around this gift that is known as the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the gift that we are given. And this gift was given to mankind at Pentecost, right? And it falls into basically three, this whole chapter sort of falls into three um, main parts. Um, that miracle that, um, that pen of the, the descent of the Holy Spirit, uh, Peter's sermon, and the, tr the sort of the results of it, you know, 3,000 people accepted Christ in one day, and then then, um, then to just after that, sort of the picture of that unity that started to be about in the com new community that was started in Jerusalem around the uh, around the, the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so it's kind of a, a beautiful picture of what the church is supposed to be. So we're going to look at that. We're going to read the first few verses. We're going to try to break them down. And then we're going to uh, move through this. Now, I'm telling you, there, there are 40-something uh, 47 verses in this uh, in this chapter. There's no way we're going to be able to get through all of this. And so I would encourage you, those watching at home, um, you won't have the benefit of being able to come to our Sunday school class um, after the, the message and be able to hash out some of the things that we didn't cover this morning. So I would encourage you to spend this week, if you're watching um, us at home, spend this week and spend it in, in Acts chapter 2. Read it, reread it, follow the links, follow the, um, the connections that Peter is making in the sermon to some of the 
Old Testament allusions. I'm going to talk about several verses here. I want you to write those down and spend this week sort of mulling over and, and, and thinking about dwelling on this chapter 2 and how it pertains to us and you in particular um, as a, a follower of Jesus Christ. So let's, let's go ahead and read the first few verses of chapter 2 and then we'll continue. Um, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Again, that all together is, is that same word homothumidon. It means all of one accord um, or one mindedness, all in one mindedness or one all together in one place. Verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were seat sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now I'm going to stop there just for a second because obviously these first four verses are pretty powerful. We're going to spend a few minutes in there, but we're not going to spend as much time as I know uh, some people would like, and we're definitely not going to spend as, um, as much time as, as we could. Uh, there's a lot in those first four verses. In fact, the first time I ever preached this um, uh, this particular chapter, uh, it, it took me several weeks just to get through chapter two because it's such a dense chapter. Now we're not going to do that this time. Uh, obviously we're going to move through this as... Uh, as we can, um, but I think it's important that we spend a little bit of time on verse one, verses 1 through 4 to set up um, the rest of this sermon, the rest of the message that, that God wants to us to get out of this this week. So I mentioned before, we're talking about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about Pentecost, and we're talking about that concept of being one accord. Now we've already sort of fleshed out what it means to be of one accord. It's that focus on the same thing, that single-mindedness, homothumidon is the word there um, in Greek. And then we have the word Pentecost, and that sort of is mentioned several times, and I know that may be a difficult word for some of us to understand. And then we're going to deal with also the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit is definitely something that's important, and that'll be one of the, the final things that we talk about is, is the Holy Spirit. So we're going to start off with dealing with the word Pentecost. What is Pentecost? Those of you that are unaware of the history of the Jewish people, you may be unaware of, of this particular feast. Now the Jewish folks, they had um, seven feasts that they were part of their, their calendar that they uh, participated in. These were commemorative feasts that brought them uh, into a place of worship. Uh, they had three feasts in the spring. They had three feasts in the fall. And they had one sort of odd feast in the middle called the, week, the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. It's the Hebrew word Shavat, the Feast of Shavat. And and I say it's an odd feast because it's sort of in the middle. You have seven because that's the number of completion. And you have that one right there in the middle. Uh, and it's, it's the one that they're dealing with right now. The reason why it was called Pentecost is because that's the Greek word for 50 days. And the reason why it was given that name in the Greek was because Pentecost or Shavuot was supposed to be celebrated 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. Now... I don't have time, and we won't have time to go into all the details about the feasts, but I, I want you to know one thing, that there are, these seven feasts are prophetic, and they are important. And it's important for us as a church to know the feast order, and to know what they were, because that gives us an understanding of not only what Jesus did in that spring feast, 
because all of those feasts were uh, not only commemorative for the nation of Israel, but, but they were prophetic, speaking of the future. And three or four of those feasts, not the other three have not yet done, four of those feasts have yet, um, were fulfilled in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the first three. And then the fourth feast, the Feast of Pentecost, Shavuot, what we're talking about today, was also fulfilled in the descent of the Holy Spirit. And then there was this time between the feasts, between the fall, the spring and the fall feasts, where um, there's an interval of time. And that's sort of where we're at now, prophetically speaking. And the very next, uh, the next feast is the Feast of Trumpets that's going to happen. And that's the beginning of the fall feast seasons. And that's the one where the priests stand up on the Temple Mount and they blow the shofar horn and they call the congregation in. And so that's really the next feast. That's why many people believe, and myself included, that the next uh, event on the prophetic calendar of um, of God's timeline is going to be the, the trumpet call that calls the church out of the world and into the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will have an opportunity to feast and celebrate while the church, while the, the, the world goes through a time of tribulation. So, that being said... Um, we're now we're now done with the the understanding of that. Now there are some verses that I guess you guys can look at that um, if you want to. One of the verses that talks about uh, Pentecost is found in Exodus chapter thirty four. Another place um, that talks about this is in Deuteronomy chapter sixteen. Both of those are good areas in the Old Testament to be able to draw from. Um, but the thing you need to understand is that the commandment, and we're going to see this in a few minutes, the commandment of the festivals of all seven of the festivals, only three of them were a mandatory attendance kind of thing, right? Uh, the scripture says that every able-bodied Jewish man needs to be at three of the seven festivals. And those three festivals are Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, which is after the Feast of the Trumpets. And so these are the three feasts that are commanded that everybody be there. And that's kind of why we'll see that there's just this huge number of people that were in this location um, at the time. Also, this was an important uh, prophetic moment for the church. Now, moving on, we get to the Holy Spirit. And this is something I think is such an important and an impressive thing. And this is the job. What is the job of the Holy Spirit? Uh, we see that the Holy Spirit descends, and there is a, a lot of information packed in between chapters two and chapters, or ch- verses two and uh, through verse four. And it talks about um, what the whole, what happened when the Holy Spirit sort of showed up. But it doesn't really give us a much of His job, and we don't know much about the Holy Spirit. One of our church members uh, told me this last year they really wanted to focus on the Holy Spirit. They wanted to study the Holy Spirit, and there's a lot of good books out there that talk about the Holy. Spirit. Spirit, some older books written by theologians, newer books, but the reality is is that the only real book that we have to study about the Holy Spirit and who he was and what he did and what his main focus was is God's Word. Um, Everything else is just opinion on what God's Word says or anecdotal evidence of how the Holy Spirit has moved through their life, which is the worst type of evidence. And so the only real truth we have is contained in God's Word. And unfortunately, Holy Spirit is kind of, I hate to say shy, but he doesn't talk about himself. He talks about God the Father. He talks about God the Son. But he doesn't talk about himself very much. And that's why it's hard sometimes to understand who and what the Holy Spirit is. But I want to turn your attention to a couple passages in the book of John that sort of gives us a little more clarity about the Holy Spirit. So if you will, turn with me over to the book of John chapter 14. 
So John is recording the words of Jesus, and in John chapter 14, starting in the 15th verse, we see Jesus is now beginning a discussion about the Comforter, the Helper, the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit, okay? And so this is what he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay, gotcha, Jesus, understand that. If, and I would, this is what Jesus said. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's the covenant you make with me. And then the covenant I'm making with you is that I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Because Jesus knows he's going away, right? He knows he's getting ready to leave this earth, and he knows there's a priority of presence. We've already talked about that. We'll read that in a few minutes. Um, but he knows that the greatest gift he can give to his followers after his departure is the Holy Spirit. Look what else he says. He says that, and that is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him. Because he abides with you and will be in you. That's interesting. And then he goes on to say, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He goes, I won't leave you. I'm going to come back for you. But in the process, I'm going to leave a gift for you, the Holy Spirit. And after a little while, the world will no longer see me. But you will see me because I live. Because I live, you will live also. In, the, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Okay, now we get to the meat of it. One of his disciples named Judas, not the one that betrayed him, asked him, Lord, why are you not going to do this? Basically is the, is the question. Verse 23, Jesus answers him and says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I was abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, see how he quantifies that. He's telling us exactly who the Helper is. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. He will teach you all things. Now that's a pretty amazing statement if you think about it, that Jesus is going to teach all things to us. You know, this was a this is a hard concept for a lot of folks. But you need to understand that this was prophesied many, 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 many years ago. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, he talks about that new covenant. Most of the time when we do our communion times, we talk about that. We talk about, uh, when we do the Lord's Supper, we talk about the fact that, that this was a new covenant that Jesus talked about in the, in the Last Supper, the new covenant he made with mankind. But there's other parts of that new covenant that's interesting. He says, I will, uh, I will write my name on their heart and they will be, uh, I'll write my commandments on their heart, they will be my people and I will be their God. But he also goes on to say that, that no man will need to teach another of who I am. And they'll know. And it's it was kind of a cryptic verse there, and it's kind of a it's hard to really understand it just in the context of Jeremiah thirty one, uh, the chapter. But if you look at it in context to the descent of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and the fact that Jesus is telling us the Holy Spirit is going to teach us all things, this is something we can stand on. I know it's important that we have pastors and we have teachers and we have individuals that that help us, mentors that they lead us on that walk 
as we uh, seek to know more about who Jesus was and what he's doing in our lives. But it's also important to understand this, and this is where I think it's important to deal with, is that is that the Holy Spirit is dwelling within us, and it's his responsibility to teach us what we really need to know. And it's our responsibility to seek his help. You know, if you're ever reading scripture and you're just really struggling with who or what is being said or there's an apparent contradiction or, or you're, you're reading something that just doesn't make any sense to you, I encourage you to take an opportunity to lay that before the Lord and ask that the Spirit of God that dwells within you will make it plain to you what you're, what you're reading. Uh, I don't think we do that all the time, but James talks about this, John talks about this, the idea that we don't understand because we don't pray. You know, God will give understanding and wisdom liberally to all that ask. We need only to ask the Holy Spirit and He will make it known to us. Now, you may say, well, Pastor, does that mean if I have a, a disturbing uh, passage and I just pray about it, um, that He will just instantly tell me like a, like a shot from heaven or, or a note that flutters down from, from the sky? No, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, is that if you make your desire known to the Holy Spirit and you ask Him to make something clear that's from God's Word, He will do it and you may not do it right away but it's going to happen and I encourage you to look for those times when the spirit moves within you and makes a passage clear it's a beautiful moment where the Holy Spirit and you are finally united in a certain area but to do that you have to read his word to do that you have to dwell on troubling passages not skip over them like some people like to do and go to the fun passages um, I think it's important that we dwell on what God has written here there's another passage that Jesus talks about the spirit of God the Holy Spirit, and that's in John chapter 16, so just a couple chapters to the right. And in John chapter six, uh, 16, starting in, in verse 7, Jesus again is talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Look at that. Now, skipping down to verse 13, it says, But when, the Holy, when He, the Holy Spirit, um, uh, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is come. He will glorify Me, or he, for he will, um, he will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. And all things of the Father that the Father has are Mine. Therefore, I said, He takes of Mine and will disclose it to you. Now, the important thing to look at is verse 13. He says that he will not speak of his own initiative. That's, a, that's a, the translated uh, Greek phrase that literally means he's not going to speak about himself. His job isn't to come down and say, hey, I'm the Holy Spirit, worship me. His job is to come down and say, hey, he's Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, a part of myself and a part of the God the Father in, in a way you can't even possibly understand. But you need to know that the Son of God came for a purpose. He came to seek and save those that were lost. And you need to follow him and love him and worship him. And that's what he is doing. You see, building up the Son. The Father has glorified the Son. The Holy Spirit glorifies the Father and the Son. And so he is our power source. He's our energy. He's the one that embeds himself in us and focuses our attention on Jesus. His goal is not to build himself up. That's why when you start looking to, uh, trying to understand who the Holy Spirit is, it's so difficult. Because he's not here to make himself known. He's here to make the Son of God known. And so that's kind of what, what the focus is of the Holy Spirit. And it's such a beautiful thing because it's the first time in the history of the planet 
where the Holy Spirit is coming to stay. Isn't that what, what John recorded in, in verse 14, chapter 14? Was he's going to stay with you forever? The idea that the Holy Spirit is going to come and dwell and not leave. I mean, in the past, that happened. The Holy Spirit came, it dwelled, and then he left. And it was a singular event to singular people. It happened to Elijah, it happened to Elisha, it happened to David, it happened to Saul, it happened to uh, Joshua, it happened to Moses, it happened to many individuals in the Old Testament, but it never lingered. He never stayed with the entire nation and dwelt every believer like he's about to do or he did in this passage in the book of Acts. So it's, it's an incredibly powerful moment. Now look at the signs of his coming. It says here, these, um, and then suddenly there came from heaven a noise, and it was like a violent Violent rushing wind, or a mighty, mighty rushing wind, uh, depending upon the version that you're that you're reading. And, uh, there's some things you need to look at. First of all, you need to say the noise was like. Okay, so the writer here, Luke, is not telling us that it was a rushing wind. It was it was a sound that was like a rushing wind, and it was a violent rushing wind. That wind there is like a hurricane or or tornado. It's it it, it literally means uh, driven to a goal. It means it's it, the word itself. It gives the idea of transporting something and moving forward at great speed, right? So yesterday I had the opportunity to watch my favorite football team do uh, win, its, win its game and, and, and move on to the next round in the playoffs, and I'm, I'm kind of excited about my team. And I noticed that, that, that there were several times there that, that their running back would, would, would be given the ball, and sometimes he would run powerfully, sometimes not so, but you know, there's those moments, those, those amazing moments where the, the running back grabs that football. He's now holding that football and he's charging forward with a purpose. And these guys are, are powerful guys, right? A lot of the rushing back, uh, running backs in the in the new in the NFL today have um, they're kind of short. Well. They're tall to my standards, but you know, short um, in comparison to some of the other guys. But they're short and dense, right? Filled with muscle. I've seen the legs of some of these guys as big as round, like tree stumps, and they just keep charging forward. And it never fails to amaze me when it, when one of these running backs grabs that ball and runs into a mass of bodies, right? And the collision is so powerful that it just rocks the pile back. And then you can see sometimes the camera gets in there, and you can see the powerful muscles of that individual charge forward, carrying that, that package to the goal, which is the goal to get across this certain line. And it's the same imagery that Luke is using here for this mighty rushing wind. That word rushing is a word in Greek that means to transport and to carry something with, with great force and intensity and purposefulness, right? And then you have the word um, a mighty or violent in the New American Standard. That, that's a word, it's, it's bihos in Greek, and it means violent and forcible, right? It means nothing's going to stand this way. It's very similar to what you would, you know, the sound like of a tornado touching down with that intensity and that violence and the, and, the, and the force of will moving it forward and then you get the word wind in Hebrew there it's rock but in, in, in the Greek here it's pneuma and the idea it's the blowing wind of God right this is a beautiful and amazing picture of who God is and, and it gives us the idea and then you have the idea of fire right the fiery tongues that, that were separated the Holy Spirit arrives in power and assertiveness and you see these imagery and you see um, it's all pulling from the Old Testament right you see the beautiful pictures of this the idea of wind and the 
rushing sound and the noise was all caught up with the same visible um, manifestations of God to the nation of Israel as they were being brought out of Egypt, right? And then... You also had that fire, same imagery that was used to uh, use of God by God about God on the hill that, um, that that Elijah was at when he was hiding in that cave, seeking the presence of God, and then finally the presence of God manifests itself more fully in that in that in the still small voice, the tongue, if you will, that comes about. So you see all of these beautiful imageries that is is all divine. It's all um, it's all images of the the divine uh, that we see in the, in the Old Testament. And it's a beautiful picture. So we have noise like a violent rushing wind. We have a, um, the appearance, the tongues of fire. So we have, we have, we have fire. We have the, 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 the nature of the tongues. We have the Holy Spirit coming down in that sound, that rushing wind. It's a beautiful picture. This is something I think is important. It was audible, it was visible, and it was demonstrable, right? So we have three things there. And this manifestation of the Holy Spirit, it inspired a, the, the people that were there to, to speak in, in using words that they've never understood maybe in the past. It was that audible manifestation that declared and described the sudden coming of heaven, from heaven, the, the wind or the blowing blast of God, like a roar. It was this beautiful picture that came out. And then we get that Greek word that describes it. Now in Greek it's pneuma. In, in the Old Testament the word for spirit um, or, or uh, the wind that is often used to characterize the spirit in the Old Testament is the word ruach. And we get that same words that are used there. And we see this accompanying um, in several of the Old Testament uh, 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 Old Testament manifestations of God. Like in Exodus chapter 3 and Exodus chapter 19 like in 1 Kings chapter 8 we talked about with um, Elijah about Ezekiel when he talked about this in chapter 1 of his work the idea we see is that uh, God is moving right and he's moving through his spirit into these individuals and it's this idea that we see the breath of Yahweh God's spirit Ezekiel talks about that in Ezekiel chapter 37 I know I'm throwing a lot of Bible verses out at you guys but you need to know where the spirit is moving us through and I know I'm spending a lot of time on this first part of this because it's so important and we're, we're probably going to not spend as much time as as many people would like on the middle part of this but we're going to move over to the end part as the results the response if you will and so they had that moment where the Spirit came down and dwelt in them. And then verse 5 happened. And it says they were living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. This is an important thing, right? Because now we see all of a sudden a reversal of the, of the, of the Tower of Babel, where God came down and confused the languages. And now we have all these different nations. Remember, there were 70 nations in the Old Testament, uh, in, the, in the book of Gen uh, Genesis, where it talks about um, the, the nations were separate, and they went their different ways in the table of nations. And now we see um, about 14, 16 different nations that were represented um, by name, but we know there were others there too besides that. It says every nation, they were gathered together, and they were um, gathered together, and they heard from their own, they heard their own, um, the sound of their own uh, language being spoken to them. Uh, and it's interesting. So, uh, verse 5, And now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. 
And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together, and they were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. That word language there is dialectos. It means they were listening to their own language, right? Their own dialect. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why are, why are not all these, um, why? Are, are not all these speaking, who are speaking are Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language which, in which, to which we were born? And then it has a list of different nations from the Parthenians all the way down to the Arabians. And it says in verse 11, we hear them in our own tongues, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity and um, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking them, saying they're full of sweet wine. They're full of new wine. They're full of, full of wine, right? They're drunk. And that's when Peter stands up. Now, I find it interesting that we deal with this. I'm only going to touch base on this just, just a little bit as we move on. I know a lot of people want to make a lot about the, uh, the term there, uh, speaking in other tongues, and we can make good arguments about this, and I'm sure that we'll talk about it, uh, hopefully, in Sunday school and some other times. Um, but this isn't the discussion about uh, uh, tongues right now. This is a discussion about the miraculous movement of God. You had people that were, that were living in Jerusalem that were from every nation. They were here. Some of them were here just for the feast. Others who were living and dwelling in the in the city of Jerusalem, and there was just this giant melting pot of Jews that had come together primarily to be able to worship, because this was one of the three main feasts and brought them into the building. Now, that being said, uh, they were here. They were devout men. We know they were Jews. And they all heard this great sound. It said, when the sound occurred, the crowd came together. They were wondering, what in the world is going on? Where did that sound come from? Just like if we heard a major car accident down the road, you know, we would all rush out to see because we want to know if anybody's okay. What's going on? What's happening? You never know. Uh, this same temple where they were gathering together, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, um, in the temple, but this the same temple was a scene of, of, of a couple massacres when the Jewish people would rise up and the Romans had to come in and put them down in a serious way. So, you know, you didn't really know. And so people were wondering, what in the world is that sound? What's happening? We need to go outside and figure this out. And so they all gathered together at the sound. And when they did, the, the people that were in that upper room that had the Holy Spirit descend upon them, they rushed out and started talking about the amazing things of God, right? And look what it says there. It says in verse 11, they were speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Everybody was coming. So all 120 of them rushed out. They're all sharing their own story with everyone they can meet. And it's interesting because we oftentimes think that it was Peter who stood up and gave his sermon and that was the catalyst, right, that made everybody uh, fall on their face and, and worship God. It was it was part of it, but it wasn't it wasn't the only thing that the Spirit of God was doing. Those 120 people that were in the upper room, they went out and filtered around this crowd. They were all gathered at the temple. So this upper room must have been close to the the temple or the sound was really loud, one or the other, because they heard it. They came out, they gathered, and the temple was really the only place in, in Jerusalem at that time where uh, you could have a crowd of 3,000 or more people gathered together um, uh, in one place. And so... 
Um, they were talking. They were filtering into the crowd. They were speaking to people, and everybody was hearing their own language. And it was it was it was beautiful. It was transcendent. It was weird. It was crazy. It was it was bringing about their. They were in awe. They just they couldn't understand this. Look what it says in verse twelve. With in a continuing in amazement, with great perplexity. It's just a, a it's a it's a unique way of saying they were just completely dumbfounded. Right? They didn't know what in the world was going on. What does this mean? They said. And that's when Peter's stands up, right? Peter the great, Peter the um, the, the, the preacher, Peter the um, the fisherman, Peter the, the one that was uh, the, the leader of the apostles, the one that, that rejected Jesus, that had to be brought back in. And we saw at the end of the book of John, the last chapter, where, where Jesus uh, specifically spends time with Peter and redeems him for the, the sin of the rejection that he did, that he gave during the trial of Jesus. And so Peter now stands up a total different regenerate individual than the man that we saw walking with Jesus through the Gospels. He is now somebody so different because the Holy Spirit has brought into him. He's now a child of the King, right, for the first time in his life. He now has the Holy Spirit dwelling in him, and he stands up. Now, I want you to know something about this whole standing up thing. You know, it's interesting, back in those days, the teachers would sit. Every time we see Jesus teaching, he's always sitting, right? The Bible says he's sat on the hill and taught. He sat in the synagogue and taught. He sat over here and taught. That was the way the rabbis taught back in those days. When a rabbi had something to say, they sat. They got comfortable. You sat too and you got comfortable because you were going to be there for a while, right? And then you would hear what the rabbi or the teacher had to say and then once the teacher was done, then you were free to get up and start moving, right? So that's not the case here. Peter stood up. He's giving a different look here. He has a, 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 He's now bringing forth the idea that he's no not just a, a teacher, he's a herald, right? He is somebody that is that is giving forth and, and heralding the entrance of the king into the universe. He's the one that walks in front of the king, just like John the Baptist, who was the one that cried out from the wilderness and went before as the final uh, prophet of the Old Testament. Peter stands up now as the, as the new, I don't want to say prophet, but the new preacher, teacher, herald of the kingdom that's going to come. Jesus has now arrived, and that's where he's at, right? And so Jesus comes out, he, he, he wants to stand up and talk about Jesus. And he says, he says, you men of, of Judea and, and all you that live here in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. These men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock in the morning, guys. It's not that easy to be drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. And he says, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. I'm, I, we're not going to be able to go into great detail with Peter in his first sermon that he ever preached. He uses three passages of scripture. He uses the book of, he uses Joel, um, chapter 2, verses 38, or 28 through 32. He uses uh, the book of Psalms, uh, chapter 16, um, and he also uses Psalms chapter 110. And he also draws in a lot of echoes from the past. And the thing that I want to point out to you in verse 17, it says that it was spoken of through the prophet Joel, but it's shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men shall see vision, and your old men shall dream dreams. And this is um, a quote from the Septuagint, and we'll get into that later on. I know that you're not going to be able to, a lot of these things I'm throwing out, you're just not going to grasp all, all at once. I'm, I'm, I'm just throwing out as much as I can. But it's, you need to understand that it's begun, but it's not done. 
This is not a fulfillment of the prophecy. It's a beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecy. Because if you read through the book of Joel and you read that final prophetic moment that, that Peter talks about, it begins with the pouring out of the Spirit, but it ends with the nation of Israel falling on their face in, 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 in repentance, which has not happened yet. So we know this is a beginning, it's not the end. And this is what is important for us. You also know that he talks about David. He says that, um, that, that Jesus was a, was a son of David. He was a child of the king. He was the one that was foretold that was going to sit on the throne. And this is important. And so he uses those passages from the book of uh, Psalms to sort of justify the point that Jesus was truly Lord and that the men of Israel, the men of Jerusalem in particular, were the ones that stood up and demanded that he be crucified. But he had to be crucified in order for salvation to be, be offered. And then we get down. I know I'm skipping over a lot, but and just bear with me. We need to get to the results, right? We need to find out what happened because of this fall. I call this fire fall, right? The fall of the fire of God. The Holy Spirit descending upon mankind. What happens? See, this is important to understand, is that when the Holy Spirit attends us, when He falls, when He comes down upon us, when He falls on us, so to speak, we have no choice but to be moved. You know, think back in the time of your of your Christian walk. Has there ever been a moment in time where you just felt the transcendent moment where God just filled you with His presence, and you got the goosebumps, you got the you got the presence, you got the empowerment, and you were able to do something that or say something that you never would have said or done without that urging or the unction, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. If it have not occurred to you yet, you need to pray that God will do that. Pray that He will fill you with His Spirit so that you might be able to accomplish something great. Not to lift yourself up, but that He might be magnified. Because remember, the Holy Spirit's primary, primary job is to glorify Jesus, right? And so everything He gives to us is going to be used to help us glorify Jesus Christ, not ourselves. And so when the men of Judea heard the message, that's when it says in verse 37, they heard this and they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? That word pierced to the heart is a single word in Greek. It's katanousis. It literally means, it's, it literally means to make a divot or, a, or an impression, right? It, it's an image that you get in the Greek. And a lot of times it's used in other writings in the Greek of a horse that with his hoof just digs into the ground, right? And forms this divot like a horse sometimes does as he's trying to claw into the ground to get a, a, a tasty piece of uh, whatever it is that they're trying to eat or, or just trying to make a move or sometimes stamping their fist. It's a, it's a, it's a hooked size print. It's not, a, it's not a little prick. It's not a little, it's not a little, a little twist or a pinch. It is a, a in-your-face smack, right? And this is what happened. They were, they were moved to the very core of their being. They were gut punched by the Holy Spirit. They were kicked in the chest by the by the, the Spirit of God, if you will. Right? They were moved. And they said, what do we, what do, we do? And this is where Peter lays it out. He says, this is what needs to happen. You need to repent. You need to be baptized. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's important to remember that. You know, a lot of times we think, well, we're already saved. 
The Holy Spirit's already in us, right? And, and don't mistake things, right? Don't mistake the initial gift of the Holy Spirit that comes in us at a redemption when we're sealed by the blood of Christ and, we're, and we're, we're born again into the family of God, that that's the only time the Holy Spirit moves in our life because that's an erroneous understanding of Scripture. Uh, the Holy Spirit, He does things, right? And, and things that I don't even begin to understand. But I'm going to tell you now, there are times in our life as we walk with Christ that we need an extra filling of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to empower us and to motivate us and to, and to move us. And it's those times that the Spirit of God that's dwelling with us will, will bow up, will fill the room, if you will, with His presence, the room of our heart and our heart and our, our soul, right? And He'll move with us and through us and for us. It's at those times that we need. And if you haven't had a moment like that where you felt the Spirit of God moving through you, then you really need to pray that God will do something. Now, I'm not saying that He's going to move you and that we're going to get into the speaking of tongues and other things. I'm not talking about some Pentecostalness. I'm not talking about any of that. Just talking about asking God to move in you, right? To reveal His presence and to and allow Him to use you, me, us, for His purpose, right? He's asking here, and sometimes it means that we do need to repent. You say, well, I repented when I got saved. If that's the only time you ever have to repent is when you get saved, then you're a better individual than I am. Because I tell you now, I am all co constantly confronted with my sin. And you say, well, pastor, that's not right. You're a pastor. You're not supposed to be a sinner. <laughs> Hello. You know, I'm human, just like everybody else. I'm a sinner saved by grace, just like everybody in this room, just like everybody's watching online. Right? We're all sinners saved by grace by the grace of God. And because we're all sinners, we all needed to repent. But it's not the only time we repent. When we sin anew, when we sin afresh, we need to be, be able to repent. The Bible says that if we are faithful to repent, He's faithful to forgive. And it's an act of ongoing repentance. It's not a once and done kind of deal. It means we have to constantly be moving as the Spirit is urging, as we're growing and changing and more is revealed about ourselves. And sometimes our sin will block us from the Spirit of God being able to flow more fully through our lives. So we need to ask that forgiveness and seek the Spirit of God to, to grow in prominence within us. And it says in verse 39, for the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off and as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly, solemnly, yeah, whatever, testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So we see things. This is, this is you see, so what, right? How do we move forward? What What's our, what's our so what moment? Here's the thing. You want to ask me what First Baptist Church Kenai needs to do? You need to ask me what we as a body of believers need to do in this time of change, turmoil in the government, turmoil at home, turmoil everywhere. If you want to ask me what we need to do, here's the, 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 the pathway for, for success. Here's the pathway for growth in every church. Is that you as individuals need to devote yourselves to the teaching of the leadership. The apostles teach. I'm not going to try to say that I am uh, on the level of Peter or James or John. I'm not. I'm not on the level of Paul. I'm not very smart. I, I consider myself at, at best an armchair theologian. You guys know that. I do the best I can. I love Jesus. I study his word. But I know there's so much I don't know about this. And the more I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know. But I devote myself to his word. I devote myself to his teaching. I have mentors myself that I listen to, that I study under. You need to also do 
that as well. You need to study under the leadership that, that, that God has provided for you. And if you aren't getting what you need, then you need to seek more mentors. Seek individuals. Ask God to bring somebody of prominence in your life that you can listen to and learn from. You need to devote yourself to, this, to, to the teaching of His Word. You need to devote yourself to fellowship. When was the last time you got together with, with friends in the church? Right? Is part of the body of Christ. When was the last time we had fellowship? I know in this COVID world where everybody is concerned about, you know, getting together and possibly getting the virus, and, and believe me, I've had it. It's a horrible thing. I don't want you to anybody. But, you know, it doesn't preclude that we are called to, to fellowship. And maybe that means we do it digitally. And, and I just, Lord, please, as, as I prayed, I know I don't want this to be the only way we do this. I feel like in many ways the church has had to go underground, if you will, because we're not able to gather together like we used to. And, you know, just the idea of having a, a, a fellowship meal where the church gathers together causes some people just to you know have have just to be totally nervous and afraid, and I can't change that. But we need to know that that God is commanding us to devote ourselves to the teaching of God's word, devote ourselves to the fellowship of believers as we gather together. So we gather together. And then he also talks about the breaking of bread. We're not just to build a fellowship. We're not supposed to just hang out. But in the process, we're to break bread. Now, I know a lot of you said, does that mean we eat meals together? Yeah, that's part of it. Part of it was breaking bread. But almost every single time in the New Testament it talks about breaking bread, we're talking about communion. We're talking about the Lord's Supper. We're talking about having these times together. You know, next Sunday... Uh, we are going to have a time of communion. And I encourage you to be thinking about that as you come forward. It's the third Sunday of the month. We want to focus every 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 month for the next while. Uh, we want to be able to have once a month we gather together for the Lord's Supper. Next Sunday will be that, that day. We're going to do it on the third Sunday of the month um, for a while now until we move forward uh, leading us up into Easter. And I would encourage you guys to be thinking about it, praying about it, because we are called to do this. We're supposed to go to gather together and, and devote ourselves to the teaching of God's Word. We're supposed to devote ourselves to the fellowshipping together of the believers. And we're supposed to devote ourselves to the breaking of bread. That that means not just eating, but also the time of communion with one another and with God. And then we also are to focus on prayer. When was the last time we got together with our brothers and sisters in Christ and prayed? Right? I know that there are things happening, not just in our community, but in our congregation. When was the last time we as a group got together? If you're concerned about something, if you have a problem in your life, if you are struggling in an area, when was the last time you went to your brother or sister in Christ and said, hey, can you pray with me about this, right? Not, hey, when you're going on your own way, please give me an offer of a prayer. I'm talking about, will you come together and pray? The Bible says when two or more are gathered, I am there with you, right? When The Bible says that everything that we ask of God, He will give to us liberally. When was the last time we laid our concerns before God and expected Him to move? You know, sometimes we are afraid to talk about our dirty laundry and a business within our house and our community or whatever because we don't want to be gossipers. We don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to have any of those things that, you know, plague us. But the reality is, is we're fellowshipping with one another. Your needs, your concerns, your fears, your failures are known to me because we dwell that closely together. If you don't know enough about the individuals that are sitting in this room or the people that you are fellowshipping with online, if you don't know enough about them, it's because you're not spending enough time with them. You say, well, pastor, I've got jobs. I've got this. I've got that. I've got a life. I've got kids. I've got all those things too. 
But you have to be intentional about it, right? And maybe you're not able to fellowship as much as other people that are retired or, or have more time because their jobs are not as stru structured as yours. But it doesn't mean that you don't take time to be intentional about fellowshipping. You know, you, everybody has at least one day a week that they're off. Rather than sitting back and, and putting your feet up and watching a football game, maybe, maybe God's telling you you need to fellowship a little more with your friends or, or, or your brothers and sisters in Christ. And during that time, share the desires and the needs and allow them to pray with you and pray for you. Right? Those are the things that will grow a church. It says, the Bible says in verse 43 that everyone kept feeling this sense of awe. They were impacting their community because they all maintained this sense of awe. They were praising God daily. There were many signs that were being accomplished in their, in their, in their congregation. There were people that were selling off things. They were giving it to the church. Look at verse 45. Verse 46, day by day, this is the thing right here, this is the key, day by day they were continuing in that one mind, remember that, that word homothumadon, one mind, they were in the house of God, the temple, and they were breaking bread from house to house. Underline that if you do underline stuff in your Bible. Breaking bread from house to house. There is no clear definition or injunction that we have in Scripture of, the, of what we're supposed to do as a church in this idea of breaking bread house to house. You know, a lot of times we think that this communion needs to take place only here in God's house because it needs to be touched by the hand of, um, of, the, of the priest or the, or the pastor because I have some kind of mystical touch that nobody else has. That's not true. That's just not true. The breaking of bread is not a mystical union. It's an opportunity to remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the covenant he ratified in his blood with us when he refers to Jeremiah 31.31. It's an important moment where we are called to gather together. It's an intensely important part of our walk with Christ. And he says we're supposed to do it in houses. And he's not referring to the temple. He has another word for that. He's referring to your house, my house house. When was the last time you attended a small group? And I'm not talking about Sunday school. I like Sunday school, but it's, it's not enough. You know, if you're not meeting with brothers and sisters in Christ uh, uh, at least one day a week or maybe two days a month that's away from church, then you're not doing what God wants you to do. You're never going to grow in Christ. The, the greatest amount of growth that, you will occur, that will occur in your Christian walk will not be on Sunday morning listening to any sermon I preach, no matter or anybody else preaches, no matter how good they are. Your greatest moments of spiritual growth will take place in the living room of a small group as you are gathering with your fellow believers to break bread and to study the Word of God together, praying together. I'm telling you now, if you want to grow your, your, your walk with Christ, if you want to strengthen your marriage, if you want to give your kids a lasting legacy, if you want to do something that's going to impact your family, your life, and the life of the community and the church as a whole, then you need to be involved in a small group. God is talking about, this is how the church grew. This is how they met needs. And what were they doing in the small group? They were breaking bread. They were having their meals together. They were, they were spending time with gladness and singleness of heart, sincerity of heart. They were praising God and having favor with all people and the Lord. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know, I'm telling you now, 
as I live and breathe, the, 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 the focus that we need to have as, as the Christian church of God, right, is the focus of doing exactly what the book of Acts says, that we are to gather together as a body, we are going to praise, pray, and focus on the singleness of God. We are to break bread together, which is the Lord's Supper. We are to have fellowship and communion. We're also supposed to have meals together. We're supposed to learn and study the Word of God. You want to know how to grow a church? You do what the book of Acts tells you to do. If you do that, I guarantee you, no church will stay stagnant. All churches that follow the Acts 2 model will grow. And I know people say, especially people that, that, that don't really want the church to grow, right? They don't want numbers because they like the club that they're in. And so they sit back and say, well, well what about, well, how do you quantify growth, right? And I know preachers love to talk about nickels and noses, right? We need to see the size of the budget and the size of the, the, or the, the number of people in the seats. And so we look for those things, but that's the wrong way to look. I'm not trying to say that, that if we have thousands of people showing up on church on Sunday that we're, that we're doing what God wants us to do, that may not be the case. What I'm saying is that as we grow in our walk spiritually, the, 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 the Spirit of God will so radically transform our lives. We will follow the commandments that Jesus laid down. We talked about that in John. He says, if you love me, follow my commandments. He gave two. He said to love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love their neighbor as yourself. Neighbors and nations, my friends. You want to know how to reach the community? You want to know how to grow a church? It's neighbors and nations. Love the neighbors, go to the nations. That's what you need to do. And if you don't know how to do that, that's where you study God's Word. Get involved into a small group. I can tell you, if you want to know the next steps, that's it. But some of you are sitting here online, or maybe you're in the room. You know, I know most of you guys that are sitting here, so I know it's difficult sometimes to, to make this call, but I always try to leave the alt leave it open to the altar. But you know, if you are sitting here or watching online and you don't know Jesus Christ, your Savior, you're not part of the family of God, then, then you need to begin. Just like those men that were listening listening to Peter's sermon, they were, they were just completely overwhelmed with the Spirit of God. As God pressed into their heart the need to know Him, they said, what do we do? He says, repent and be baptized. Repent. That means tell God you are sorry for your sin. Turn from them and go the other direction. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is the only single thing that can save you. And ask for that salvation. And then follow Him in baptism. It doesn't mean baptism saves you. It doesn't mean repentance saves you. It means all of that together is part of the process of salvation and sanctification as we move closer to where God wants us to be. So if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you've never taken that first step, this morning can be it. Those of you that are watching online, if you want to go to our portal and the, on the uh, on our Facebook, our website, and how to get saved, feel free to do that. If you'd like to talk to somebody directly, please, please um, send us a message on Facebook. We're more than happy to share with you. I can't count the number of times that we've had um, prayer requests and other messages that have come through our Facebook page. Please um, use that as a vehicle that we can be able to reach out to you. Send us an email. We're more than happy to respond to you and let you know we're praying for you and that we can give you some of those next steps. If you need a Bible, if you need to know the Word of God, if you want to sit down with me or, or one of the other members of our church that are leaders, send us a message. We'll set up a time. We'll sit down with you. We'll bring you a Bible. We'll show you what God's Word says. If you're sitting here today and you want to spend some time more in God's Word, stick around for Sunday school. We're going to hash out some of the things we didn't get a chance to talk about this morning um, in Acts chapter 2. But in the meantime, I'm going to open up the altar and we're going to, uh, we're going to close with a song. And I encourage you to be thinking about this, praying about it. What are the next steps? 
I know the Holy Spirit's moving within us. He's moved within me. The altar's going to be open. You need to come forward as he directs. Um, for those of you that are watching online after this final song, the, um, the service will be over with. We ask you to go with God the rest of this week. For the rest of us, let's go ahead and uh, open up the altar after I pray. And, uh, and let's take this time to really move as the Holy Spirit has asked us to. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for what you've done. We ask that you guide us and direct us in our hearts. Lord, we pray that you will just uh, just allow your Spirit to run, uh, to run wild and free in our congregation and our hearts. Lord, we ask that the, the, your Spirit will just fill us and move us and bring us where you need us to be. Father, we ask that you will guide our understanding and our thought process as we seek to know you more. Father, we ask all these things because of what your, what your son did on the cross. So we know that it is in his name that we are going to pray. But Father, we also know that you have given us your spirit to dwell within us that, that might make known all things unto us. Father, we pray for your wisdom and discernment. We pray for your spirit to just fall upon us that we might truly understand in ways that we never did how impactful your word really can be. And Lord, I ask that you give us a mission and a focus as we seek to follow you and understand you more. Lord, we love you and we ask this now in the name of your Son and our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Like I said, we're going to finish a final song. And uh, those of us that are here, we're going to move to Sunday school. For those of you online, after the song is over with, you are uh, released for the week. Let's, um, Let's go ahead and sing. Please stand.